Howdy, welcome to Answering the Call, Conversations with Practitioners, a new podcast series from The Ready Room. My name's Josh. And I'm Sydney. Today we have a super special guest joining us for our first episode of Answering the Call. We are joined today by Will Hurd. Congressman Hurd graduated from Texas A&M University with a degree in computer science and served as student body president during his time. He has had a long and storied career in public service, first as a CIA officer and after as the representative to the 23rd Congressional District of Texas. Congressman Hurd has recently published his first book, American Reboot, An Idealist Guide to Getting Things Done to Much Critical Acclaim. Without further delay, Congressman Hurd, welcome to the podcast. Howdy, y'all. Thanks for having me on. I'm looking forward to the conversation. So, Congressman Hurd, we're excited to be talking to a Texas A&M former student. So, can you talk to us about your time at Texas A&M, particularly during your tenure as student body president? Sure. Um, I wasn't supposed to go to Texas A&M. I thought I was going to go to Stanford. I applied to Stanford, got accepted. And to be frank, A&M was my backup. And I had a counselor at my high school that was a big Aggie. He was class agent, all this stuff, and he kept harassing me. Uh, to go down to AM. And so I went down one week and I was like, if, if I go, uh, will you leave me alone? And he said, yes. And so I went and saw some of my buddies that I'd played basketball with and went down for a football game one weekend and just fell in love with the campus. Met the guy who was the number two person in student government at the time. Um, met some of the red pots. This was back when Bonfire was going on. Um, just had had a ball and thought that the things that I was going to be able to do outside the classroom, plus the quality of education in the classroom um, was going to be a great experience. And so I put in my notification to Stanford um, that I wasn't coming. And then I said, hey, I told Aggieland, get ready um, and great experience. And so, you know, for, for me, um, you know, my experience then it ultimately changed my life. Um, I had never really been outside of Texas. I grew up in San Antonio, born and raised. Um, and one summer I'm in the Zachary building, uh, excuse me, one, my first year in, in campus, I'm walking across campus and, um, I'm in the Zachary building and I see a sign to take two journalism classes in Mexico city for $425. And I had saved, uh, 450 bucks, um, from working in the Kane computer lab. It doesn't exist anymore. Now it's a parking lot. And so I went to Mexico, you know, fell in love being in another, uh, culture, uh, learning about things I'd only read about in books. And that's what added my international studies minor. Also, my sophomore year is when the Bush School got started. And so I was there as a, what's it, you know, cha- not a chaperone, but, a, 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 you know, when, when the event was going on, taking people to their seats and stuff like that, and having all the former presidents there was cool. Got to meet Chuck Norris. You know, that's where we had people uh, like Jim Olson. You know, Jim Olson was a guest lecturer in a class at the time and told me these amazing stories um, about the CIA. And I was like, wait a minute, I can like recruit spies and steal secrets in exotic places. Sign me up. I'm in. And that began my interest in the agency. And it only continued when I was, when I was student body president and, you know, the opportunity to, to serve a large student body, you know, at the time, I think we we were, we were 44,000 students. I think I got 11,000 votes when I got elected. And it was a, one of the worst tragedies in our, in our campus history uh, with the collapse of Bonfire, 12 deaths, um, a couple dozen injuries. But it was, you know, I'd give all those experiences um, away if those 12 Aggies were still alive. But through that experience, through my time as student by president, I got to know 
Bob Gates, who was the interim head of the Bush School, then became president of Texas A&M, then became secretary of defense. He had already been um, the director of the of the CIA. And so I was fortunate in that last year to get to know these people. And these people are still my friends now today, right? They're my buddies. And, and so um, anyways, that's that's kind of a whirlwind of my time in, in Aggieland and how um, it, you know, I love how you talk about answering the call. A&M gives you that sense of service, you know, understanding what servant leadership means, um, giving back something larger than yourself. And, you know, I, I learned those experiences at A&M and that's what gave me the interest in, in going and serving my country. So upon graduation, you already had your first job lined up. You were heading to the CIA to become a clandestine officer. What were your thoughts when you decided to pursue this career? What was motivating you? If you have other students listening, you should have multiple options, right? I had I had applied to 10 different things. I had seven offers. I knew three more offers were coming, but the number one was, was going to the clandestine service, or at the time it was called the Directorate of Operations. I knew uh, I was I was 22. The fact that I could get into a program that was probably more exclusive than anything on the planet. The number of people that take into the program is very small, uh, especially considering the number of applicants. And I thought it was going to be awesome to 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 serve my country and do some of those exciting things that I heard Jim Olson talk about. And so so but but it was it was a decision because at the time. I had an offer from IBM that my starting salary was three times what I was going to be making at the agency. And I also failed to, t- to factor in state income tax, right? <laughs> so having grown up in Texas, I know what the heck that was. There was a significant uh, a pay difference. Um, and, and some of the other offers I got was, was, was even more significant. So that was, that was a struggle. But I thought, you know, look, I, my, my expenses are low. And the ability to do this when I'm young was was what was exciting. And what's wild to me, I had a Toyota 4Runner uh, um, when I when I left, uh, and I drove from San Antonio to Washington D.C. And my stop in Dallas to fill up on gas. And this was back in the day when you had TVs out in the gas pumps. And the USS Cole had just been blown up by Al Qaeda in the Gulf of, of Aden off the coast of Yemen. That was our, our a US Navy destroyer. And I remember thinking, wow, I'm getting ready to start in the CIA. You know, this, I think this was a Thursday. I was starting on a Monday. I was like, I wonder if I'm gonna learn more about what actually happened. And like three weeks later, I'm the Yemen desk officer. So my, my career literally began um, with Al Qaeda, and you know, my last tour was was in Afghanistan and ended with Al Qaeda, um, and so it, it was wild. And when look, when I was a freshman at AM, if you would have said Pakistan, I was like, is that that dude that lives in Walton? You know, that's from that's from West Texas, right? Like, I didn't know, I didn't know, you know, I don't know anything about Pakistan or India or, or places like that, you know. And and it's wild to think. Now I've had I've had those experiences. Yeah. So you just briefly mentioned that when you were joining the agency, it was a very tumultuous time for our country. Can you talk about what it was like to serve during this turning point for our country? Yeah, look, uh, it, it, it's interesting. Everybody knows the name Al Qaeda now. Everybody knows Osama bin Laden. Um, but when when I was a fifth year senior at Texas A&M, those are not names people understood. 
Um, people did not understand, you know, radical Islam. Uh, people did not have those kinds of, uh, th- th- it was just not something that was being discussed. Um, terrorism was not on, you know, on anybody's radar. And so, so I started in October of 2000. So uh, 11 months before the 9-11 attacks. And um, having worked at Yemen account, I also was working in the counterterrorism center, um, CTC, and so when uh, when September 11th happened, and, and I can, I go back to August of 2001, a month before the attacks, uh, people in CTC were sleeping at their desks. They were sleeping in their cars. Everybody was like, something's about to happen. We don't know what. This term intelligence chatter uh, was something that originated, you know, at that time because th- it was it was uh, many of the folks that were following this issue was like, something's afoot, we didn't know what. And so when that second plane hits the World Trade Center, all of us knew this was the thing that like, had been had to pit their stomach. And so, so it is, it's hard, it's hard for most people to understand and appreciate um, 9-11 if they weren't really alive at that time. It's the equivalent of, I can talk about Pearl Harbor and from a historical standpoint, I can give some perspective on um, Vietnam, but because I hadn't, I hadn't been there. And look, I was the fourth employee in the Counterterrorism Center Special Operations Division on September 12th, which was responsible for prosecuting the war in Afghanistan. It was a major turning point in, in our history. And what's wild now is 20 years later, 20, 21 years later, uh, almost 22. It is, it's it's wild to think at that time, a supermajority of Americans was afraid of another attack. A supermajority of Americans were afraid of, of leaving their homes. This was something that for a decade after attack had an impact on, on our consciousness. For, for someone who lived through that time, and again, I was a junior guy at the time, right? For someone who lived through that period, it is shocking that another attack didn't happen because there were a number of plan, uh, of plans for there to be attacks. There was a number of organizations and splinter groups and groups that were interested in doing a copycat of what happened on 9-11. And the fact that another attack of that magnitude never happened on our shores, and it's been more than two decades, is because of men and women in the intelligence community, our military, our federal law enforcement, are, were, were acting as if it was still September 12th. And the, the discipline and tenacity that it took um, for a large group of people to prevent another attack. And the fact that many people take that for granted is actually a sign of, of the success of those that were involved in, in the global war on terrorism. You talk about the discipline and tenacity of the men and women in the intel community. What other personal traits do you think made you good at your job? Um, you gotta listen. You know, the, the other thing that was that was helpful to me was I was used to being the only person that looked like me in a room. You know, my dad's black, my mom's white. When I was at Texas A&M, I think we only had three percent of the of the of the student population were black. Like it was not it was not a weird thing for me to be the only person that looked like me. And so when I went into the other countries or places where it was it was foreign and I was foreign. It didn't create an anxiety, uh, fear or anything like that because I was used to 
operating in that kind of environment, a, a level of empathy is required when it comes to when it comes to recruiting spies and selling secrets. Every, you know, I always say I was a professional best friend. Um, nobody commits espionage unless they trust the other person that you're dealing with. And not once did I ever do anything that I felt morally wrong about. Right, like every every recruitment I ever made, uh, it, it improved their life and it helped America. And and so you know the key look, y'all learn about the agent recruitment cycle, right? Spot assess, develop, recruit, turnover. And within that cycle, uh, when you're you know you're talking about uh, does somebody have access to information, and you talk about motivations, what would be their motivation to work with us? And that is the the seek you know the the art part of tradecraft is understanding people's motivations. And to understand people's motivations, you got to listen. Um, to understand people's motivations, you got to be empathetic. And I think that's a that's a hallmark that some people would think is weird um, or like, oh, why would that? I wouldn't think that would be the case, but I think that's the secret sauce. Um, the other thing is an ability to operate with imperfect information in um, ambiguous environments. We never, you know, the the CIA and the clandestine service of the CIA, the collectors of last resort. If you can't get a piece of information any other way, um, that's when you go. That's when you go to the DO or the or the or the clandestine service. And so you're working on the hardest of hard problems because the problem's so hard. You can't be like, oh, it's too hard. You know, I, I never got a director to be like, you know, hey, your office, your your team's going to do this. I I was never allowed to like send a cable back to headquarters and be like. Uh, hey guys, we don't have enough people. We don't have enough money. We don't have enough time. We just can't do that, right? Like that was never that was never a response. The response is like, okay, we'll go do it. And so that that can do attitude. Uh, I've never been around a group of people that had you know where that was infused in in everyone, and and that's why I think the the agency has been successful over time. So working for the agency, you've traveled very extensively around the world, seen many peoples and cultures. Um, what did the agency teach you about the state of global affairs and America's place in the global arena? Look, the, the, um, the most, one of the most important lessons I learned was not about the rest of the world, it's about America. And it's about our unique role in the rest of the world. And being able to see America through the eyes of people that weren't America, Americans, um, it was fascinating. And we have a unique role in the rest of the world, period, full stop. And um, and people are looking for us to play that. Oh, and by the way, America became a, actually became a superpower in the middle of World War I. That is when our global GDP surpassed um, the GDP of the United Kingdom for the first time in history. And, and that happened literally in the middle of, of World War I. Uh, but we didn't start acting like a superpower until the end of World War II, when we gave a helping hand to Europe and helped rebuild Europe. America has become a superpower, not because of what we have taken, but because of what we have given. And that has been uh, the key and the value to our, to our success. And look, people that wanna, wanna um, talk about American exceptionalism as neo-colonialism, they're insane. They don't know what they're talking about because it has nothing to do with even the early parts of, of how the United Kingdom created their empire. We have helped people. And when we have helped people, rebuilding Europe created one of the largest trading partners the world has ever seen that allowed the United States and, and Europe to be responsible for 50% of GDP 
that helped us. So what we often forget is that what happens overseas has a direct impact um, at home. So I was able to see that uh, up close and personal. The first class I took, an international, it was like an international economics class or something like that. The first lesson was on the rule of law. 17-year-old Will Hurd is they're like, rule of law? Like, this is the first lesson? We're going to do a whole class on the rule of law? Of course there's rule of law. I don't want to be stupid. This, uh, there's rule of law everywhere. Like, this is a dumb class. But this is all we're talking about. And then I didn't realize appreciate that until I've lived in places that didn't have rule of law. We take for granted as Americans um, some of these principles and theories that have led to our success, and they don't exist in other places. And, and so my time overseas and in all these, these, these spots made me appreciate that. And, and it made me appreciate when America doesn't live up to its values, not only does it hurt our, our own population, but it hurts the rest of the world because the rest of the world sees us as the only people that can stand up um, to some of these negative negative trends that have always existed throughout history. And so, so, so yeah, that, that stuff left a mark. So I want to transition to talking about your career in Congress. After working at the CIA, you served for three terms for Texas's 23rd Congressional District, and you had a very accomplished tenure in Congress. You became famous for your expertise and focus on cybersecurity and technology. You served on the House Select um, Committee on Intelligence and much more. Can you talk about why you pivoted from CIA to Congress and what was it like being a congressman? The reality is, um, in addition to recruiting spies and selling secrets, I had to brief members of Congress when I was overseas. And so you would have congressional delegations or CODELs come out. I was pretty shocked by the caliber of our elected leaders. I probably had to brief over 200 members, uh, Republicans, Democrats, men, women, all 50 states. Um, I thought they were doing things that were negating what my friends and I were putting ourselves in harm's way in order to, to do. A couple other Aggies who were involved in politics had mentioned, you know, probably back in 2006 timeframe, have you ever thought about District 23? And I'm like, what's District 23? And they're like, it's a congressional district. And, and I'm like, I'm not, I'm not going to run for Congress, right? And then when I started getting frustrated with our elected leaders, my mom always said, you're either part of the problem, part of the solution. And so um, I, I, I walked away from the agency in order to run for Congress. And everybody in the CIA was supportive of that because they knew I was leaving in order to help the intelligence community in a different way. And I lost that first election. So uh, I lost the runoff. Nobody thought I had a chance. And I won the primary by 900 votes, but I didn't get 50 percent of the vote. Then I um, in the runoff, I made a strategic and tactical error and I lost by 700 votes. And that sucked. And the whole thing that kind of put me over the top when I decided to run was, you know, I said earlier, I, I got about 11,000 votes when I was at Texas A&M. To win a Republican primary in the 23rd district, you only needed 20,000 points. And I'm like, heck, I'm only, you know, um, I'm, I'm halfway there. And, and when, I was at, when I was in Aggieland, I, I think, I think, I forget if the, the amount I could spend, if it was $300 or $1,000, right, was the most you could spend in a campaign. And I was like, shoot, like I was able to do that on less than a grand. And so, but that loss is what gave me the opportunity to become a partner in a consulting firm. Um, it was called Crumpton Group. 
And I, um, I helped build a cybersecurity company called um, Fusion X. And that really is where my expertise, you know, I, I always feel weird with that term expertise. I, I, you know, my degree in computer science at AM was helpful, uh, but working with this guy, Matt DeVoe, I learned a lot about the, the industry. I learned a lot about um, the attacks and what our adversaries are trying to do and how the future of conflict is cyberspace. Cyberspace is a domain, just like air, land, sea, and space. Um, it requires different tactics, techniques, and procedures, and we'll operate in it. And so that experience with Fusion X was great. And I didn't think I was going to run again, um, but when the opportunity came in 14, I took it and, and was successful. And so the the early my earliest successes in Congress was because of that experience in cybersecurity. And like I always tell people, you know, I focus. I, my goal is to do two things: a be a the gold standard when it came to constituent relations and be a leader in national security. And so those are the only two things I focused on. And so so I was able to leverage my expertise in order to be successful. And so it was it was a great experience working on things I cared about. Um, I learned a lot. Part that I, I miss is, is helping constituents. A lot of people don't ever think that they would ever have to call their member of Congress to help with something, um, but you'd be surprised how often that happens. And um, to be able to get back to the community that was pretty awesome. So today you are bridging the gap between the public and private sector in terms of cybersecurity through your outreach work and involvement with OpenAI, uh, the German Marshall Fund and Allen and Company. How have you seen the importance of cybersecurity grow over the course of your career? I think the United States of America has 10 years to get our act together in order to make sure the rest of the century stays the American century. Because this is no longer about us being our best selves. We are in a direct competition with the Chinese government. And, and, I, and I say Chinese government specifically. The beef is not with the Chinese people. The beef is not with the Chinese culture. The beef is not with Chinese Americans, right? The, what our Asian American brothers and sisters have had to deal with um, since the pandemic and, and hate directed at them is unacceptable. And we should do everything we can to stop that. The Chinese government has made it very clear that by 2049, they're trying to surpass the United States of America as a global superpower. This is not my opinion. This is what the Chinese government says about themselves in English. 2049 matters because that's going to be 100 years of communist rule in China. The actual nut date is probably sooner. It's probably the middle of the 2030s um, because one part of their plan is, is, is going to be um, controlling Taiwan and the Chinese government believes, and I think rightly so, that if they do not invade China, uh, Taiwan by the middle of 2030, the Taiwanese will be able to defend against any kind of incursion. So the clock is between now and the middle of, middle of, of 2030. Why should we care about Taiwan? Because 60% of any uh, semiconductor manufacturing happens there. Semiconductors are building blocks of every piece of electronics. Uh, not just your laptop or your fancy phone or your you know fancy car. It's also your refrigerator and your television, right? So if we think um, supply chain issues are bad now, if we think inflation is bad now, um, with the Chinese controlling ultimately then 70%, because they already have 10% of the world's manuf uh, manufacturing semiconductors, that's the problem. And so the only way the United States of America is going to win a new Cold War with the Chinese government who is four times larger than us. The Cold War with the Russians was never really going to, the, 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 the outcome was probably always known. 
The Russian economy was never the size of America. The population was never the size of America. And so we're dealing with an adversary now that's four times our size, which means we have to be four times as, as efficient or four times more efficient than they are. And an authoritarian government can get somewhere first because they have control of all factors of production and they can move somewhere first. And you can look at the space race as an example. The Russians kicked our butts on a number of issues when it came to the space race. The first uh, that, that, that NASA and America ever did was putting someone on the moon because we were able to pivot because freedom, entrepreneurship, creativity, all those things allowed us to change the end goal. And, and so that's why we were able to win by putting someone on, on the moon. So come back to the only way America is going to compete is that the public sector and the private sector actually work together in making sure America stays the global leader in, all, in, in advanced technologies like artificial intelligence, quantum computing, you name it. So that is the stakes that, that are at play. Cybersecurity is just one piece, right? It, cybersecurity is the defense in this domain. And guess what? The Chinese government is stealing our technology or trying to steal our, our intellectual property. We got to be ready. Y'all are too young um, to know what Y2K is. Y2K was in the year 2000. Everybody was freaking out that all of the computers were going were to do something crazy because back, in, back at that time, the date in software and computers, the year was only two digits. And so when the clock hit 2000, the computer was going to see that as 1900. And like all the calculations that was based on date, we're going to get screwed up. So $300 million in four years it took to turn everything from a two-digit year to a four-digit year, right? Herculean undertaking. That's going to look like a pillow fight compared to what we have to do on things like quantum computing. Quantum computing is a way of, of, of computing that's that when someone achieves quantum supremacy, they're going to be able to break every encryption that we have today, right? Um, that's going to be disastrous. And whoever gets there first has an advantage. And so even though no one has reached that kind of what's called quantum supremacy, we know how to defend against it. It's called quantum resistant encryption. So we have to be deploying that across all of our sensitive areas. Like, and it's complicated. It's hard, right? Like the idea of superposition, you know, is like it sounds like magic and how quantum how quantum computing works. But we got to get ready for it. And and the only way we're going to do this is the public and the private sectors working together. So it's great to be able to leverage my experience in those areas to help technology companies that have something that has a national security application, and 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 ensuring that the government is adopting some of the latest and, and greatest tools, but also being on the cutting edge um, of companies like OpenAI that really is, you know, I, I feel weird sometimes when I talk about these things I'm working on, because it sounds like I'm, in, I'm talking science fiction, but the stuff is real. It's great being at that intersection uh, to making sure that, that we as a society, as a country, are, are doing everything we can to keep this century, the American century, because guess what? I want to. I, I want us to continue benefiting and having the opportunity um, that we've all had and make sure our kids and our grandkids have that same opportunity. I want to pick your brain on what we're seeing in Russia and Ukraine. 
You had a really interesting blog post last month called, if you think the U.S. blew up the Nord Stream pipeline, you're consuming too much Russian propaganda. What is your assessment of the Russian propaganda and intel apparatus as we see it operating in Ukraine right now? The Russians are are best in the world when it comes to uh, misinformation, disinformation, and influence operations. They, they pioneered these tools. They've been doing this for 50 years and they're, and they're really good about it. It, it. It's scary when you see, you know, the fact that we're in the middle of elections or I say in the middle or towards the end of, of elections, you have candidates that are parroting uh, Russian talking points. The goal of the Russian government is to erode trust in American institutions. Russia has one goal, Reass- or excuse me, Vladimir Putin has one goal, reestablish the territorial integrity of the USSR. What is preventing him from doing that? Little old thing called NATO. What's the most important thing in NATO? A little old place called America, right? And so when you erode trust in our European allies about whether America has our backs, if you erode trust within the population of America about whether our government should be supporting someone, uh, these things have an impact. And that's the only way the Russians know that they're going to be able to win. They, they do not have, whereas uh, we're seeing in Ukraine, they do not have the resources to win a war. The only way that they're going to be able to win is if their adversaries um, implode uh, amongst themselves. That's why um, disinformation is so important. And one area of disinformation that I think doesn't get enough conversation is what the Russians are doing in Latin and Central, Central and South America. RT, Mexico City, Russia Today, which is banned in the United States, RT, Mexico, has a larger social media footprint than RT America ever did, and then RT in in Moscow. The influence that the Russians are having in our backyard and with what should be our our greatest allies is quite shocking. The fact that you have the Mexican government introducing Chinese technology along our border this is crazy, right? It's crazy. Um, the bilateral relationship right now is probably the worst it's been in in a in a bilateral relationship between the U.S. and Mexico. It's the worst it's been in a really long time. Part of that is is some of these influence operations, not only just by the Russians but by the Chinese as well. And here is the ultimate problem Vladimir Putin has: his military is terrible. Would he use nuclear weapons? One hundred percent, and we need to be prepared for that eventuality. But here is what 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 a, a nuclear weapon doesn't do. And we know it's in their doctrine. They have, a, they have a doctrine called escalate to de-escalate. Since the 70s, the idea was if you lose a nuclear missile, everybody calms down because they freak out, right? And everybody's going to stop. But in every war exercise, every war game um, that has happened in both the U.S. and Russia, gaming this out, escalation always led to escalation, which is where the whole mutually assured destruction that has always kind of been assumed what would happen for, for nuclear weapons use. But a nuclear weapon can't hold territory. And that's Vladimir Putin's biggest problem right now. The ineffectiveness of his his ground troops to take and hold is difficult. And so a nuclear weapon can cause destruction. Um, A tactical nuclear weapon would cause even less destruction than what we've already seen in some cases. Um, And so that's why he's like, he would probably, he would probably be willing to use it, but he also knows he's not going to be able to hold that, that area. Um, And I think this would be the one thing that would get the Chinese and the other Central American Middle East um, to stop supporting Vladimir Putin.
I, I think he understands that. And his troop call up, you know, the 300,000 troops that had, look, if your current forces who have been training and doing this for a while can't operate, what do you think a bunch of people that have already been retired that haven't trained or held a weapon in a long time going to be able to do? Nothing. It's going to be even worse. And that's why you're seeing internal protests in a way that we haven't seen in a really long time in Russia. But the key is we got to help the Ukrainians win this war as quickly as possible. And winning means pushing the Russians out of all of Ukraine. Um, that's the only thing that Ukrainian people would accept. Anybody advocating for anything less is not going to be welcomed inside Ukraine. I hope that answered uh, your question, Sydney. Absolutely. Thank you. To sort of close things out, we have a lot of listeners that are current Bush School students. Do you have any advice for them who are ready to embark on their career in public service? Yeah, do it. It's awesome. It's it's rewarding. It is a way to serve your country and to work on the most important challenges of the day. The thing I loved when I was in the agency, look, I was 22, 23, 24, uh, working and dealing with some literally the most important issues in, in national security. It's a worthwhile endeavor and the sacrifices are worth it, in my opinion. The way to be effective is you got to have, you know, understand personal effectiveness. I think one of the things that I learned at Texas A&M was things like time management. It sounds, it sounds so basic and so corny, um, but if you can't, if you don't know how to manage your own time, if you don't know how to improve your own effectiveness, then you're not going to be able to do um, some of these things that are needed to be done. Um, somebody told me when I was a junior in college to read The Economist, um, that was one thing that I always did because it gave you a broad understanding of, of things all around the world. I think that matters. I think anybody going into the foreign policy arena needs to understand the aftermath of World War II. You know, you, you can't understand the current, um, the current global context without understanding um, the aftermath of World War II. In, in my own personal journey of understanding the world, they look like, and then, and then you get to a point where you're like, how do you, why did World War II happen? Which means you got to go back to World War I. And then you're like, how come after like seven, you know, 50 years of peace and prosperity, World War I happened? You got to go back to the Napoleonic Wars, right? And, and so, so for me, trying to understand these major epochs in, in our history is, is important. But start off by just reading about what's happening now and then get some, you know, some good understanding of things like World War II. I think you, you can't go wrong when it comes to national security or, or, or foreign policy. Well, that concludes all of our questions. It's been an honor to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining us, Congressman Hur. Yeah, you're our first guest on the new podcast. So thank you so much. Well, I, I appreciate your time. I'm glad y'all are focusing on these issues because I, I think it really is important. Um, the only way that we're going to continue um, this experiment called America is if more people answer the call and to serve. And so I, I appreciate what y'all are doing. And, and you know, for all y'all's listeners, if you like some of these things I'm talking about, join. I have a little newsletter I put out every other week called The Brief. Uh, where I talk about national security, politics, and technology, and it's just at willbeheard.com because these things are what's going to drive uh, the rest of the century. So thanks for for caring and, and gig them, y'all. Gig them.